Good morning, Doxa. If uh, we haven't met yet, my name's Rudy. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 John this morning. If you've got a Bible, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 11. If you've got one of the blue ones that are free to you, that are in the back, it's on page 592. Um, And I... uh, I've loved this series that we've been in. I am so grateful to get to kind of continue it this morning. And, and to do that, we need to take a step back into last week just a little bit to kind of frame where we're going uh, this morning as we wrap up chapter 3. So where we ended last Sunday was with Rob uh, bringing uh, this message, wrapping chapter 2 into chapter 3, and really kind of giving us this bottom line idea that when we know who we are, we, we know what to do. It's the rhythm of identity-shaping activity that we've seen all over First John, over and over and over. It's as if John is trying to communicate something to his original readers and to us, that when we know who we are, we, we know what to do. But in our text today, we see John do something... Uh, Really interesting. In, in chapter 3, verse 10, kind of leaping into verse 11 and onward, when he says this, it's, it's on the screen. He says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Okay, that's pretty clear. Um, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love their brother. So to this point, we've seen how important it is to John, that we understand that our identity shapes our activity. But in our text today, John is building on this idea by helping us to understand the role that our activity actually plays within our identity. And John lays it out for us, this springboard into the text from chapter 3, verse 10. See, John's words here reflect the words of Jesus from John chapter 13, 35, uh, which John would have heard Jesus say, where Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. These are the children of God, the disciples of Jesus, marked by their love for one another. But he also calls back to the words of Jesus you might not have heard before in John 8, 44, where Jesus talks about the children of the devil, and is talking to a group of people. Go read John 8 this week. It's fascinating. But he says, you are of your father, the devil. Thanks, Jesus. Um, Right? Like, that's like a wild—you're of your father, the devil, because your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. As we pick up this text, we have to pay close attention to what John is doing, or we will miss the purpose of these verses. That he is speaking so clearly from verses 11 to, to the end of this chapter about identity and activity. And he's drawing from these moments when Jesus did the exact same thing. Check it. In both instances, Jesus says, They will know that you are my disciples, your identity, by the way that you love one another, your activity. And then he says, you will know, They will know that you are, you are the father, the devil, your identity, because your will is to do what your father does, your activity. Now that's interesting because we see in these words of Jesus very clear moments wherein the activity of an individual actually indicates their identity. Now I have to pause there before it sounds like we're contradicting the entirety of everything that we've laid out to this point because this actually doesn't contradict what we've been saying. It actually strengthens and supports it. Again, last week Rob taught us this this kind of all-encompassing phrase to grasp onto when you know 
who you are, you know what to do. So that's kind of this image one that'll be up on the screen, this idea of identity-shaping activity. This is the work of who we are in Christ shaping what we do as children of God, those who follow Jesus. When we know who we are, we know what to do. But in the same breath, in a continuation in this letter, John is also clear when he says that by this, it is evidence or evidenced who are the children of God and the children of the devil, and then goes on to identify and outline the activity that correlates with each. So we know that identity shapes activity. John repeats it over and over, but now he's teaching us the completion of the circle, that our activity actually supports our identity. John is writing to communicate to us to finish the sentence. When you know who you are, you know what to do, and when you do what you know, you remember who you are. John is writing to these people who still have internal questions about their own assurance as children of God. Remember a few weeks ago, they've seen people leave. They've seen people go from disciple to deceiver, and they're asking the question, how can they know that it won't happen to them? And what they need, I've affectionately coined this, what they need is a Mufasa moment. Okay, Everyone, Lion King, we're on the same page. We've seen Lion King. Okay, uh, Lion King one and a half, best Lion King movie ever. Dig a tunnel, dig, dig a tunnel. Go, okay, anyways, I love Lion King one and a half. But this is from Lion King one. You, you remember the story. Simba just can't wait to be king, right? You see this incredible picture. He just can't wait to be king. But then when the opportunity for him to kind of step into that role as king arises, he runs. His activity doesn't align with his identity. Now, it doesn't change the fact that he's still supposed to be king, right? It doesn't change the fact that that's who he is. It's just his activity does not support his identity. He runs away, and in running away, he actually tends to, he has this tendency, he forgets who he is. He goes and hangs out with Timon and Pumbaa, Grubbin, like the whole nine, and and then he's drawn out by, drawn out by Rafiki, drawn out to this moment where he looks in the reflection, sees himself, the water's tapped, and then he sees his father, and then he looks up, and Mufasa says these words to his son Simba. He says, Simba, remember who you are. That's a Mufasa moment. The moment wherein you have to be and are externally or internally reminded of who you are, because when you know who you are, you know what to do, and when you do what you know, you remember who you are. It's important to note here that loving one another, just as a pause, does not make you a child of God. We are made children of God as we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. Faith is knowledge, belief, and trust coming together, a committed holding on to of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Rob talked about this last week. We are adopted through the finished work of Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection and are made children of God. So loving one another as as John will outline here, is not an activity of earning salvation. It is an activity that gives evidence to others and to us that we are indeed saved. That as we love one another, we remember who we are. We are reminded by this very activity what is true of us because of what Christ has done. To quote the line of Calvin who said, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. Faith that justifies us, that saves us, comes with evidence of its work. And you know who needs that evidence? It is beautiful and good and right that other people would look on and see you and see the transformation the gospel has done in your life. But you know who needs to remember that the gospel has transformed you? You do. I do. We need that remembrance 
God doesn't need that remembrance. He knows. The people around us, it is helpful for them to know, and it gives us an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But in those deep, dark moments in your room at night as you stare at the wall at three in the morning, and you take account of your life, and you look at who you are, what you've done, the things around you, you know who needs to remember in that moment that you are a Christian? You do. I do. And John is giving us and the original readers here a means of knowing. These are the effects of obedience, that as we externally love one another, we are reminded internally what is true of us and our identity as children of God. It calls us to self-examination to consider how or if our activity supports our identity. So in this text, we see that loving one another is an indication of our identity as those who have been loved by God. That as you love one another, you'll remember that you have first been loved by God, who is your Father in his sending of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin. And in this text, there's actually five marks that John brings to the forefront for us to remember that are true about us as we love one another. As we love one another as an an indicator of our identity, there's five things that we are reminded of across the board. So let's hop into the text. If the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. Let's go. Mark number one. When we love one another, we remember, we are reminded that we are alive. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain— who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, when this world hates you. We know that we have passed on from death into life. We know that we have passed on from death into life. We know that we have passed on from death into life because we love the brothers and the sisters. Whoever does not not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding within him. So from the jump in this text, John is saying that our love for one another is an evidence for us. Verse 14, we know that we have moved from death to life when we practice loving one another. We know that we've been saved. We know that the work of Jesus has taken place. We know that we are alive. And it is interesting that as he begins to talk about what loving one another looks like, he starts with a picture of what it is not. And he chooses this picture of Cain. Um, we talked about this a, a while ago in our Genesis series, of round one, um, in chapter four. The Cain and Abel were sons of Adam and Eve. Their parents had taught them to worship, and as such, they brought their offering to God. And Abel brings his best. He brings the firstborn of the livestock, the fat or the better portion. And Cain brings, the text says, some of his land's produce. God regards Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. In short, Abel had come to worship, and Cain had come to check a box. God honors Abel's righteousness and dismisses Cain's passiveness, because you can't play God like that. So Cain, however, is furious. And it says in the text that he looks despondent. He is both angry and sad. That's interesting. You see, instead of repenting and coming to God with a sacrifice of worship, he sits in his anger and in his sadness. You see, his envy has caused him to think of God as someone who is withholding something from him. His jealousy has caused him to look at Abel as someone who has taken something that was supposed to be his. Both of these fuel the fury that he feels at God and Abel and confirm the way that he is seeing himself in that moment. So he is sad because he believes that he is the victim in this circumstance, that they have taken something from him, not that he has done something wrong. This envy 
shapes them, this jealousy shapes them, this fury shapes them, and instead of humble repentance, he chooses active hatred of his brother. And so God speaks to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, and says, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God says to Cain, if you do well, won't you be accepted? But Cain's activity supports his identity. He does not do well. Sin is crouching at Cain's door, at the door of his life, and he does not rule over it. Instead, it rules over him. He gives himself over to sin. He murders the brother that he was jealous of, envious because of, furious with, hated deeply, and ultimately sinned towards. Cain, John says in our text, is of the evil one. In Jesus' words from John 8, he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. His activity revealed his identity. Abel's blood cries out then as a testimony against Cain, and Cain is cursed for it. This is how not to love. And it is in Cain's life we see what it is not. Love does not include envy, jealousy, pride, fury, hatred, or sin. Aren't these Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient and kind, but it does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. A lot in that to tell us what love is not. We cannot call love that which is marked by envy and fury and hatred and jealousy and pride or ultimately sin. Because lovelessness is godlessness. Godlessness will then be lovelessness. What God calls sinful, what is not of him or is blatantly against him, we cannot call loving. So these are marks of death. But we're offered marks of life. That is, we love one another. And then as John says in the same breath, as we love one another, don't be surprised. This is interesting. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Why? It's because our love for one another does to a world what Abel's righteous sacrifice did to Cain. It exposed the shortcomings of what he called love. That when a culture does something that they call love or the community of God loves in accord with the way of Jesus, that over time the way of Jesus proves to be the deeper way of love or the way of Jesus, the people of Jesus never capitulate to the love that is demanded by the culture. There is hatred of the world against this love because it is an exposing love. John is teaching that the way that Christians love one another ought to be disruptive to the mind and, and, and offensive in some ways to the culture around them. I'm not saying go out of your way to be a jerk. It's not what he's saying either. He's saying you just practice loving one another. Jesus called this shot, by the way, when he said the same thing to John in chapter, John chapter 15, 17 through 19. These things I command of you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John is parroting Jesus. He's reminding them, you are not of the world because if you were of the world, then they would just love you as their own. But Christ chose you, Christian, out of the world. Your love for one another, a love devoid of jealousy and pride and envy and fury and hate and sin reveals that you are not of the world and you are not of the devil, but you are of Christ. You have life in him. John says this about the new way of loving one another, that it is a mark of life. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers and the sisters. Our love for one another is an activity that supports our identity as children of God. We are alive in Christ and not dead in our sin. And our love for one another is intended in part to remind us of it. So that's mark number one. We love one another. 
When we love one another, we remember that we're alive. Mark number two, when we love one another, we remember that we're in Christ. First John uh, chapter three, verses 16 through 18. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here we see the opposite of what was given above, where Cain is given as a picture of what love does not look like. In Christ, we are given a picture of what love does look like. It is a laying down of ourselves. It is a self-giving that becomes a mark of love, a giving of yourself for the sake and good of other people in alignment with the self-giving love of Christ himself. John draws this again from the words of Jesus, John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. Our love for one another supports our identity as the children of God by reminding us that we love like Christ because we ultimately are Christ's. That as he laid down his life for us, now we lay down our lives for one another and we love one another. And as we love one another and lay down our lives for one another, we remember that he laid down his life first. When we know who we are, we know what to do. When we do what we know, we remember who we are. So what does this love look like? A lot of terms could be used here to form our understanding. But John says this. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, could be a brother or sister in need, and closes his heart against them, how could God's love abide in him? Closes his heart against him. What a wild, like, picture that is. It's an interesting phrase John uses here. It's literally, it literally means to shut up the bowels. The bowels were like this metaphorical seat used at this time wherein the tender virtues lived. That, that which it would cost you something to give to others, which it would be vulnerable for you to be with others. You're willing to be and give to others because you love them. It's commonly referenced uh, in the understanding of this phrase. It's, it's translated maybe in your Bible as compassion. Compassion being a means by which both an emotion is felt and an action is carried out towards someone. It is right feeling and right activity through the giving of yourself for one another. It is looking at the needs of others and saying, I will give what I have because I know what's been given to me. Let's be crystal clear here. When he says the world's goods in this text, he is unequivocally talking about wealth and possessions, the things that we have those who have much, who have the world's goods, are compelled by this love to give of what they have in compassion for the sake of their brother or sister in need. This desire to give and be generous with the wealth that we steward is an indicator of our identity as children of God, that as Christ gave of himself, so we give of ourselves. How could we say we are in Christ if we don't give of our same way of ourselves in the pattern in which he gave of himself? When we look at the early church members in the, in the book of Acts who would sell plots of land and liquidate assets for the care of the oppressed and the poor, for the building of the church locally and the spread of the gospel uh, regionally, it seems radical to us and it is very normal for them. We might say, why are you giving so much? And they would say, don't you know who Christ is? Don't you know what he's given to us? Christ is our model of giving. It's not Cain checking a list. It's able bringing an offering. 
It's not just the minimum for one another, but it's loving one another with the extravagance of Jesus Christ that we love in John's words, not in word or talk only, but in action and deed and in truth. And as we love as Christ loved, we see pockets and shades of this in our own life. It's a reminder that we have first been loved in this way by Christ. It is an activity that supports the identity that we've been given by Jesus. As we do what we know, we remember who we are. So as we love one another, we remember that we are alive. As we love one another, we remember that we are Christ. These final three come from this last section in chapter three, and I'll, I'll move through these a touch quicker. When we love one another, we remember that we have assurance. First John 3, verses 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. By this, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, for he knows everything. So I love that he starts this by saying, by this, right? This connects what John is about to say with what he just said. He's still talking about us loving one another. That when we love one another, we know that we are of the truth and we reassure, we have assurance before God. Just as another reminder, this reassurance is not for God, it's for us. That as we love one another, our hearts are reassured before God so that we might remember the assurance that we have from him. And then John says something wild. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, for he knows everything. Have you ever experienced internal condemnation? When your heart, maybe the center of your being, your mind, where you have a strong emotion towards yourself of condemnation, when you start to break and tear and rip yourself apart, that moment after you think something or that moment after you do something, you sin in some way, you remember something that you did a long time ago, the guilt of the past rears its head. Something comes up, something happens, something returns to your mind, and it takes up so much real estate that you feel like at the core of who you are, you are condemned, and the person condemning you is yourself. Have you so violently doubted whether or not you were a Christian or not? John is writing to say that in the middle of your doubts, as your heart condemns you, remember, God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything. There are absolutely times when our hearts need assurance. This is when we see the practice of loving one another is so powerfully used as an activity that supports our identity because it is in loving one another and doing what we know that we're reminded of who we are, even and especially when our hearts are condemning us for our shortcomings as it relates to this love. In fact, you've likely heard this text to this point and have come to like the concession, that's, that's really not me. Like, I don't love like that. I can see where, like, jealousy and pride, like, kind of stain the way that I love and move towards you. I can, I can see where I haven't given with the extravagance of Christ. I was confronted with that over and over in the text this week. But, but you've trusted in Jesus, right? There's a conviction that is right here for you to respond to. It's a sign of life. You can repent of lovelessness or weak love and by grace change and be changed. But it goes too far if you hear or feel or sense conviction and you think automatically condemnation and then you question whether or not you were actually Christ at all. This is why it's so important that we start with identity that tells us what to do because it's something that we receive because we could not love our way to God. If it came down to us, then condemnation is the final word, but it's not because of who Christ is and because of what he's done. 
So whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 is often referenced to in relation to the heart. Maybe this is in a different way. The heart is deceitful among all things. Who can understand it? The answer is in our text, God. God can understand it. God who knows all things, including our hearts. He knows the condemnation that we put on ourselves. He knows the doubts that we experience and feel. And in the midst of it, his invitation is for us to love one another as an activity that indicates to us that God is greater than our heart. That we can return to the one that we abide and remain and walk in, who we have been loved unconditionally by, so that as we love one another, we are reminded in the middle of us experiencing condemnation that God has the final word above our hearts. From Romans chapter 8 verse 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's more true than the condemnation you would heap on yourself. And we learn that. We remember that. As we love one another, when we love one another, we're reminded that we have assurance. Mark 4, we, when we love one another, we're reminded that we have confidence. John chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved, oh, sorry, verse 22. And we, oh, yeah, no, verse 21. My bad. Hey, okay. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. When we love one another, we have an assurance from God. We have confidence to approach God, to be with God, to pray to God. Whatever we ask, we receive because we keep his commandment and we do what pleases him. Okay, let's flesh that out a little bit. What does keeping his commandment and pleasing him boil down to? It boils down to loving God and loving one another. Those are Jesus' words, Luke 10 Matthew 22. Our love for one another is what shapes, our, is, what is shaped by our identity, and it is an activity that supports who we are. And as we remember who we are over and over, our confidence grows in who Christ is and what he's done and who he calls us to be. And we learn to have confidence before God in prayer as we love one another. Because as we are loving one another, we are embodying what it looks like to keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And as we love one another, we're being formed by Jesus Christ to be the type of people who ask things in accord with loving one another and doing what pleases him. And as that happens, our prayer begins to change. It begins to shift. It begins to grow in its confidence. And I want to say this clearly. It is a confidence, not an arrogance. Think of it like this. It it is not arrogant to come into your mother's apartment to open up the fridge and to grab a snack or a drink. That's, That's confidence. That comes from knowing who you are, child, and knowing who she is, mother. As our activity supports our identity, it strengthens our understanding of our identity. It's John's repeated title to us, children. We are children. You are a child. He is the father. And as the love of the father shapes the love of the children, the love of the children for one another reminds us that we are indeed children. And as children, we have a confidence that we can approach our father in prayer. And that love for one another shapes and forms the way in which we pray when we love one another, we remember that we can have confidence before God in prayer. The final one is we love one another. We remember that we have communion with God. First John three twenty three through 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And, this, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us.
This is the third week in a row where we have mentioned abiding. <laughs> that's because it's the third week in a row wherein the first John has mentioned abiding. And that's because this is where all of this finds its locus. It is in remi- remaining with, abiding with Jesus by his spirit that our identity shapes our activity. And it is in abiding with Jesus that our activity supports and strengthens our understanding of our identity. That as we abide in the love of the Father, we love one another. Because when you know who you are, you know what to do. And when we love one another, we remember the love of the Father that we abide in. Because when you do what you know, you remember who you are. Children of God, love one another. In this, we are reminded that we are alive, that we are in Christ, that we have confidence, that we have assurance, and that we have been given communion. Love is an indicator of our identity, and when we do what we know, we remember that that is who we are. We are alive. We are Christ's. We have assurance. We can have confidence, and we have communion. To close, um, I'm struck by the fact that John uses Cain here as a picture at the beginning. I'm struck by it because of the intensity of the story. Cain is furious, jealous, envious, prideful, and he hates his brother. So he sins against his God and his brother and murders his brother. That feels intense. And honestly, if we're just honest here, that can feel a little bit distant. And then I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, verses 21 and 22, where he says, You've heard it said of those by those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Terrible story. Um, When I was in third grade, I don't know why I was doing this, but I would look at people in the third grade and I would say, fool. Like I would just call them fools. Like it was like the, like, it was like the highest curse word I could think of as an eight-year-old. And I literally got detention <laughs> for calling people fools. And I got this verse quoted to me. It was like a Christian like middle. Like I got this verse quoted to me as to why. Absolutely wild. And yet laid out right here. She was just taking the text seriously. She was saying, yeah, you're, the love for one another, I'm going to actually teach you this. The love for one another isn't being seen in what you're doing, and it's because of this text. See, I read this all of a sudden, and Cain doesn't just, I read this, and all of a sudden, Cain doesn't feel so far away. Anger, insult, hate, jealousy, pride, envy, ultimately sin. Judgment comes to each of these in the same way that judgment came to Cain. This is the way of Cain. If what's laid out before us, if we're honest, is Cain or Christ, we're way more like Cain. That's the way of sin. I think it's important to draw that out, especially especially when we're talking about loving one another, especially when we're talking about the way it's an indicator of our identity in Christ, because I think it's possible for us to hear this, to hear the story of Cain and think that our sin is not so bad. That we know we needed salvation from our sin, but we didn't need it like someone like Cain. When we do this, we start to think like this. We, when we put this gap between us and Cain, we tend to do two things. We think of ourselves as better than those who sin worse than we do. And while the consequences may be significantly different, ultimately judgment does come for sin. But what I think is more dangerous even is that we think little of our sin in comparison to others. 
that we downplay the weight of our own sin while we look at the sin of other people and judge them for it and judge ourselves and try to justify ourselves for it. It reminds me of Jesus and the tax collector where the tax collector tried to make so much of who he was and how he was. I do all these things. He only mentions God at the beginning and then the rest of his prayer is entirely about himself, trying to justify himself, finally pointing over to the tax collector and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. And the tax collector over on the side is just beating his chest and he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And only one of those two goes away justified. And it's not the Pharisee. It's the one who said, I'm a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. What's intended to be exposed in this story of Cain as it's interpreted here by John is that we are actually all Cain. The capacity of Cain lives inside of each of us. The same way that sin crouched at his door, it crouches at ours. And if we can't admit that we were once Cain, or perhaps even now are, then we will always struggle to fully understand what Christ has done. It, it will always be as if Christ has uh, bandaged up some little cute little sin that Jesus, you know, he thought I was kind of like pretty and adorable and cute. But, but we don't understand that he has moved a soul that was dead because of sin to life. Not that like, oh, I was just a little bit bad and he needed to save my little bit bad, but I got like 80% of the way there on my own. It's like, no, you were dead in your sin, just like Cain. We were lost, just like Cain. Our sin deserved judgment, just like Cain. And Christ has rescued us from what overcame Cain. What Cain could not conquer, Christ has conquered. What lived in Cain, sin, lived or lives in, in, in us. Now, I'm assuming that you don't murder, but if you do tolerate hatred, insult, anger, jealousy, envy, pride, sin, how far really is he away from us? If we wish that bad would happen to others because being around them unearths shortcomings in us. It's best if they just went away. If there's someone even here at Doxa that you've decided that you are justified in refusing to love. Further, that your expressed and repressed hatred of them is justified. The way you see yourself or them somehow makes it okay for you to withhold love from them. Perhaps Cain was never as far away from us as we thought. You know, when I told this story earlier, I didn't, I didn't really finish it. You see, there's this moment when Cain cries out to God and he says, now everybody's going to kill me. <laughs> Everybody knows that I've killed Abel, so now everyone's going to try to come after me. And what's interesting is that God doesn't kill Cain. He doesn't return action for action on Abel's behalf in this moment. In fact, he doesn't only not kill him, he puts a mark on Cain ensuring that no one else would kill him. I need you to see that this is the mercy of God towards Cain. Now, it is a severe mercy, but it is mercy nonetheless that Cain would be marked by God so that no one would kill him. And what it tells me is that if you're here today and you can admit that you're not in Christ, then you've not put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin. If you can admit and confess as I and many others have that you were once Cain, that you were a sinner, Sin runs deep. 
And that Christ doesn't just save from some cute scratches or bumps, but he takes this soul that was dead in sin and makes it alive through his resurrection. He will save you from your sin. He will save you from the guilt of it, the punishment due for it, the corruption that comes from it. If you're not a Christian, I need you to know I'm so glad that you're here. And I need you to know that God has been so merciful to you. He has not cast you aside. He has not forgotten you. He has marked you for this moment. As we sang earlier, if you're not dead, he's not done and you're not done, so there's still time. You see, for Cain, the blood of his brother cried out against him. For humanity, the sin that we have cries out against us as a testimony against us. We're accused and we're found guilty. But if you come to Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ cries out on your behalf. As Sam taught just a few weeks ago, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. For those who are in Christ, sin is silenced by a Savior who took the full wrath, the full guilt, the full punishment, the full corruption of it on himself on the cross and rose again to give us who hold to and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, new and everlasting life. If you put your trust in Jesus, you can know that you are a child of God. And if you're wondering, how do I love one another? Well, when you know who you are, you know what to do. If you know that you're not a child of God, you can also know what to do today. The answer is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And see, when you know what you do, you remember who you are. At that moment when you repent, you will become a child of God. You can remember that you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That Cain is gone and Christ remains. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's the invitation to you this morning from this text. But if you're here and you are a Christian, I want to invite you to respond to this in two ways. Um, First, to examine yourself. To to not run away from or try to stuff or try to deny or even talk your way out of the ways that you've actually experienced or practiced lovelessness or weak love or love for one another that has jealousy or envy or I'm trying to manipulate, gets whatever. Like actually stare that in the face and bring that to Jesus to examine yourself and then to ask God for help so that you might love one another in a way that does reflect Jesus Christ. I've been having to do this all week, to examine ourselves, to come again to Jesus, whose blood is still actually enough for us to forgive us of our sin, to forgive us of that sin. So there's a practice of self-examination where you just, just look back at your week, at yesterday. Repent for where you see lovelessness. Rejoice where you do see it where you do see the grace of God, and then request, ask God to help you. Examine yourself, and then remember. Have your own Mufasa moment. Remember and remain in the love of God towards you through Christ, and from this, love one another as Christ loved you. And as you do, remember who you are. Return to this day after day after day. What's true of you, Christian, is that you are alive. You've passed from death to life. You are in Christ. He has saved you, and he's made you a part of the family that he's in. And as such, you can have assurance even when your heart condemns you. You can have confidence to come before God in prayer, and you can have communion and abide in the very love of Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a moment. Whether you need to repent, examine, remember. I'm just going to give you a moment. Just if you close your eyes for a moment of focus and concentration. I'm not going to ask you to do anything, but respond in one of those three ways. Repent, 
examine, remember. Holy Spirit, come. I thank you that you have made a way for the sin that was crouching at our door to be covered by your blood, to be conquered by your blood, to be purified from us. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the good news of what you've done. God, as we even now and through the week take time to examine to remember, to rejoice, to repent, to reflect, to request. God, would it be with gentleness, Holy Spirit, that you would convict that if condemnation comes in those moments, that we remember that you, you're greater than our heart, you're greater than condemnation. You've said that we're not condemned, but God, would we, would we respond to conviction? Would it be a sign of life as we transform, repent, Jesus, throughout our days, would we remember who you are? Would we remember who we are as a result? As we remember who we are, would we know what to do? As we do what we know, God, would you remind us of who we are and ultimately of who you are? That it would spiral into worship. So God, to that end, we want to worship. We want to worship. We're grateful for what you've done, for what you've brought us out of. And to that end, we'll sing of your goodness. We love you. We're grateful for you. It's in Jesus' name.